Welcome to Between the Lines, presenting news and analysis of critical issues affecting our communities, the nation, and the world. I'm Scott Harris. This week we present Zachary Lockman, professor of Middle Eastern and Islamic Studies and History at New York University, who discusses the catastrophic level of civilian deaths in the Israel-Hamas war and the U.S. role in the conflict. Jennifer Bendry, senior politics reporter with the Huffington Post, who talks about new Republican Speaker of the House Mike Johnson's long history as an extreme religious right activist. And Mark Colville of New Haven, Connecticut's Amistad Catholic Worker Community, who explains why he and other activists built six tiny houses in his backyard to provide homes to unhoused individuals and address the city's housing crisis. But first, we begin with a summary of some of the week's underreported news stories. A day after the government of Venezuelan President Nicolas Maduro signed an agreement with opposition parties over conditions to hold a competitive presidential election in late 2024, the Biden administration eased economic sanctions against the South American nation's oil, gas, and gold sectors. The U.S. Treasury Department issued a temporary six-month license for U.S. companies seeking to do business with Venezuela's state-controlled energy sector. According to Foreign Policy magazine, the U.S. license would be renewed only if Maduro's government meets its commitments on election reform and the release of political prisoners, including four American citizens. However, the nomination of opposition candidate Maria Corino Machado could be a deal-breaker, as the government has barred her from holding public office for 15 years due to corruption charges and her support for U.S. economic sanctions. Since 2015, the U.S. has imposed a wave of punishing economic sanctions against the Maduro government. These sanctions have contributed to the collapse of the Venezuelan economy, causing 7 million people to leave the country, with nearly 500,000 seeking to enter the U.S. in recent years. On Labor Day weekend, Kentucky Democratic Governor Andy Bashir, who was running for re-election, launched an ad campaign against his opponent, Republican Attorney General Daniel Cameron, regarding his extreme stand against abortion. The ad accused Cameron of insisting a nine-year-old rape victim should be forced to give birth. Bashir is hoping to activate Kentucky pro-choice voters to win a second term. In 2022, the state rejected a constitutional ban on abortion, but strict anti-abortion laws remain on the books. The vote revealed that many of Kentucky's moderate and conservative voters were uncomfortable with the U.S. Supreme Court's Dobbs ruling that overturned the 1973 Roe v. Wade ruling that legalized abortion. This fall, gubernatorial elections in Kentucky and Mississippi will test opposition to far-right Republican culture war policies in the South and what those races could predict in abortion access politics beyond the region. In Louisiana, far-right anti-abortion Republican Attorney General Jeff Landry has already won the governor's race, winning 52 percent of the vote in an October primary. 
both Louisiana and Mississippi mostly vote along racial lines. During a brutal heat wave in Texas, grassroots climate activists announced a victory after a year-long campaign to allow school kids from grades 6 to 12 to ride on public transit for free. Sunrise Dallas, a local chapter of the youth-led national climate movement, built a successful campaign winning free student trips on Dallas Area Rapid Transit, or DART, an important step toward building support for a Green New Deal. In May 2022, the Dallas City Council passed a resolution to consider free student rides on DART. But months went by and no action was taken until Sunshine activists got the attention of the Dallas political establishment by disrupting public meetings. Only then did Allies for the Free Transit Plan emerge to join the campaign. The movement for free rides for students helped build momentum for the Green New Deal for Public Schools Act introduced in Congress by New York Representative Jamal Bowman and Massachusetts Senator Ed Markey. If passed, the legislation would invest $1.6 trillion over a decade, funding green technology that removes carbon pollution from every public school in the nation, while taking on environmental and racial inequities. This week's news summary was compiled by Bob Nixon. For Between the Lines, I'm Anna Manzo. More than three weeks after Hamas terrorists slaughtered 1,400 Israelis and kidnapped more than 220 civilians held as hostages on October 7th, Israel's military continues its relentless bombing of the densely populated Gaza Strip and has launched its long-expected ground offensive. Palestinian health officials report that as of October 31st, more than 8,000 Palestinians in Gaza have been killed by Israeli bombs since October 7th with 40% of these deaths children. Israel confirmed that it bombed the crowded Jabalia refugee camp in northern Gaza on October 31st that killed and wounded hundreds, claiming the attack targeted a Hamas commander. This admission fueled protests and condemnation of Israel's indifference to the loss of Palestinian civilian lives and renewed calls for a ceasefire to permit humanitarian aid to reach the 2.3 million residents of Gaza. On October 27th, the United Nations General Assembly approved a resolution calling for an urgent, durable, and permanent humanitarian ceasefire. 120 nations voted in favor, 12 governments joined the U.S. and Israel opposing the measure, and 45 abstained. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu has rejected a ceasefire, maintaining that those calling for a ceasefire are calling for Israel to surrender to Hamas. Your reporter spoke with Zachary Lockman, professor of Middle Eastern and Islamic Studies and History at New York University. Here, Professor Lockman, former president of the Middle East Studies Association, discusses the catastrophic level of civilian deaths resulting from the Israel-Hamas war and the U.S. role in the conflict. I don't think anyone is forcing Israel to go after civilians. Again, um, you know, we've heard this before. This has been a long-standing Israeli claim. 
that uh, they have to bomb civilians. Civilians get killed as collateral damage, but it's really the fault of Hamas. Before that, it was the fault of the various organizations of PLO in Beirut. In other conflicts, it's the fault of Hezbollah when Israel had a war with Hezbollah in 2006. They've always made the same argument. Uh, first of all, from a legal point of view, it, it really doesn't matter. You can't bomb civilians, right? So, um, and beyond that, to expect that Hamas fighters or before that PLO fighters would stand out in the open to be bombed by the Israelis or shot by the Israelis isn't very realistic. Um, it's clear that, that thousands and thousands of Palestinians, civilians, are taking refuge in, in the remaining more or less functioning hospitals because they hope that they're safe. Um, Israel ordered the evacuation of northern Gaza, which was in, in 24 hours, which was, of course, ridiculous. But then they continued bombing the southern part of the Gaza Strip and, and caused lots of, of, of deaths and casualties. So, I, I, you know, the Israeli public was deeply shocked by the attacks of October 7th. And, and we can understand that, of course. It was a profound blow. Uh, I think pretty much everybody in Israel knew somebody who was who was killed or wounded or affected by by the Hamas attack of, of, of that day. And so there's there's a great deal of support in Israel for, I, I think to put it crudely, revenge. Right now the government says they're going to destroy Hamas, um, but they're acting as if history began on October 7th, right? There's a long history of violence in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Uh, the, the great preponderance of the deaths in that conflict over the, the years and the decades have been Palestinians, usually the ratio of 10 to 1, 20 to 1, 50 to 1, uh, 50 Palestinians killed for every one Israeli. And this is a continuation of it in that ratio now, right, at least 8,000 dead, probably more among the Palestinians and 1,400 Israelis. So this, this kind of approach, this massive use of violence, right, and Israel has a very powerful army. Again, the Palestinian civilians of Gaza have, have no defense whatsoever, basically. Um, it's not going to lead anywhere. It'll kill a lot of Palestinians. It'll embitter the next generation of Palestinians uh, in the Gaza Strip, but also elsewhere who, who are watching this. There is no military solution. And by adopting this, this policy of massive retaliation, um, Israel is, is, is sowing the seeds for right, the conflict as it stretches into the next generations. Professor Lachman, as uh, you and our listeners well know, President Biden has extended support for Israel's right to self-defense, but in recent days he's warned that Israel's military must observe the rules of war. It's kind of a tepid way to address the mass killing of uh, Palestinian civilians in Gaza. What else do you believe that President Biden should be doing right now? I think the many Americans and the world is watching in horror as uh, Israel's most important ally, the United States, is really standing back and doing very little. Well, it's not actually standing back and doing little. It's it's supporting Israel, right? It's vetoed resolutions calling for a ceasefire in the Security Council. And again, there's a very long history of this of the United States since the late 1960s, uh, not only giving Israel billions upon billions of dollars uh, in, in military aid and economic aid, uh, which continues down to the present. I think the figure is about $3.8 billion every year that goes to Israel, which, which has long been the single largest recipient of American aid, but also political support, again, vetoing any effort, uh, including by the, the allies of the United States in Europe, by France and Germany and others, to hold Israel to account. 
right, to criticize the, the, the settlements in the West Bank and Gaza, to criticize the repression of the Palestinians. So in, in that sense, even though the U.S. administrations going, going way back have said, well, those settlements are not in conformity with international law and, and mildly criticizing Israeli violations of Palestinian rights, um, Israelis are not stupid, right? They watch what the United States does and not what it says. And the United States has provided you know, massive support. It's moved aircraft carriers closer to deter Hezbollah and to threaten Iran. And, and it's basically endorsed what Israel's doing. Now, President Biden has, has, has made a few remarks urging the Israelis to be a little cautious, but they've ignored it, basically. They haven't, as far as I can see, done, done much to, to restrain themselves. So this is empty talk, basically. And until the United States basically lays down the law and says, look, this has got to stop, and we have to, we have to think about this very differently— and withdraws the blank check it's given Israel, uh, I don't see the Israelis feeling any need to, to do anything different. That was Zachary Lockman, professor of Middle Eastern and Islamic Studies and History at New York University, who's a contributing editor to Middle East Report. Find more analysis and commentary on the Israel-Hamas war by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. After three weeks without a House Speaker, the Republican majority in the U.S. House of Representatives unanimously elected GOP Louisiana Representative Mike Johnson to lead the chamber. Speaker Johnson immediately confronts the certainty that the federal government will shut down on November 17th unless he can negotiate a deal between his deeply divided Republican caucus, the White House, and the U.S. Senate. But because so little was known about the new speaker when he was elected on October 25th, investigative reporters in recent days have revealed a long list of disturbing facts about Mike Johnson's leading role in Donald Trump's failed coup attempt to overturn the 2020 presidential election and a long history of extreme religious right activism. Your reporter spoke with Jennifer Bendry, senior politics reporter with the Huffington Post. Here she talks about the important issues examined in her recent article titled New Speaker Mike Johnson's Long History with a Religious Right, where she details Johnson's former job as senior attorney and national spokesperson for the extremist religious group Alliance Defending Freedom, dedicated to dismantling LGBTQ rights and freedoms and outlawing abortion. The thing to know about Mike Johnson is that he is a Louisiana Republican who for eight years prior to Congress, worked as the senior attorney and the national spokesperson for a group called Alliance Defending Freedom, which is a a Christian nationalist group that is essentially part of the religious right that is very focused on rolling back abortion rights and LGBTQ rights. If you dig into his past, you can find a number of lawsuits that Mike Johnson has help to lead because he is a constitutional uh, attorney by training, but he has used his legal background to try to essentially roll back LGBTQ rights and eliminate abortion rights. There's a whole bunch to dig into there. What I think is particularly fascinating, though, is the fact that most people in Congress don't know much about him and that this is his background. So as a reporter, I can say that many people have been 
spending the last week or so truly digging into his background that next to nobody knows much about. And the, the more that is revealed about him shows that he is, in fact, particularly extreme, even for this current Republican Party when it comes to things like abortion rights and LGBTQ rights. There's another aspect to Johnson's background that, that we should discuss even briefly, and that is Mike Johnson was one of Donald Trump's biggest ally in the House, and he had a central role in organizing support to overturn the 2020 presidential election, taking it away from Joe Biden, the legitimate winner, and giving it to Donald Trump. That's pretty disturbing. We're going to be talking about a lot of disturbing things about his ba- <laughs> his background tonight. But I, I wondered if you just touch on that, because that, that seems central uh, in, in terms of U.S. politics today and the divide between the country, where I think it's safe to say a, a strong majority uh, believe the 2020 presidential election wasn't stolen, but was indeed the target of an attempted steal by uh, coup plotters uh, like Donald Trump and his uh, inner circle, as well as, it appears, Mike Johnson. Yes. If we want to talk about the 2020 presidential election, it is absolutely crucial to understand that Mike Johnson, of everybody in Congress, he was the architect of House Republicans' argument that that Donald Trump won the election, or that at least that it should be evaluated that the election was stolen from him. It is objectively fair to argue that that Mike Johnson used his his legal background as a way to justify his argument that the election was stolen from Donald Trump, which it was not. He basically leaned on every aspect of the law he could to try to argue that widespread voter fraud should be examined. In fact, there is no proof that there was any. And every Republican that decided to vote to throw out the results of the 2020 presidential election looked to Mike Johnson to make their argument because, again, he is a constitutional attorney who leaned on his legal background to make this claim. So that alone is incredibly problematic in understanding who the new House Speaker is, never mind his long history as an attorney with the, you know, associated with the, with the religious rights. Review for our audience some of the more disturbing lawsuits that uh, Mike Johnson undertook when he was associated with the Alliance for Defending Freedom. It is key to remember that Mike Johnson, who for eight years, he was the senior attorney for a group called Alliance Defending Freedom. It's fair to categorize as a Christian nationalist group. He defended a number of lawsuits uh, on behalf of the religious rights, specifically relating to LGBTQ rights and abortion rights. In 2004, he represented the organization in defending Louisiana's constitutional amendment that defines marriage as the union of one man and one woman. He went to federal court on this one and successfully defended it again in 2004 before the Supreme Court declared marriage equality the law of the land. That is one case. The bottom line is that he has dedicated his professional life to convincing people that LGBTQ people don't deserve any legal protections and that abortion itself should be entirely illegal. Mike Johnson is a person who has dedicated his life as an attorney to eliminating abortion. So this is someone who, even within the current Republican Party, is actually more extreme than we've seen among Republicans who have supported rolling back 
some abortion rights or some LGBTQ rights. He is way out there on the extreme calling for eliminating all of it. That was Jennifer Bendry, senior politics reporter with the Huffington Post. Find a link to her recent article titled New Speaker Mike Johnson's Long History with the Religious Right by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. Whether it's a tiny house, a shipping container, or an RV, there's a growing movement around the country to provide safe, comfortable private living spaces to on-house people. They're a step up from the communal shelter model, with lots of rules and regulations to follow, with a dash or more of dehumanization. In one of New Haven, Connecticut's poorest neighborhoods, the Amistad Catholic Worker House of Hospitality has been a mainstay for a quarter century providing food and clothing to many, and occasional shelter to one or two individuals. However, that model was upended by the COVID pandemic, and then scrambled again when two homeless tent communities were bulldozed by the city this year. Twenty residents from that tent community relocated to Amistad's backyard, where they set up their tents surrounding a warming feeding and community center. On October 21st, dozens of residents Neighbors and supporters worked together on the equivalent of a barn raising, where they set up six prefab tiny houses that will be home to eight people in two adjoining backyards. Between the Lines' Melinda Tuhus visited the construction site and spoke with Mark Colville, who heads the Amistad Catholic Worker House with his wife Luz. They led the effort to raise more than $30,000 for the purchase, site preparation, and construction of the tiny houses. Here Mark describes the goal of this grassroots emergency housing project. Well, this is a a community-based neighborhood event here where we are assembling uh, six tiny homes in our backyard. This is a culmination of an effort that started about a year ago with an encampment here uh, for um, unhoused people in the backyard of Amistad Catholic Worker. We are replacing tents with tiny homes today. So there's a big uh, community here gathered to, uh, to do the work and people from the block, from the neighborhood, from, from the city and, uh, and from the suburbs. Uh, this has been a communal cooperative effort uh, bringing together people from all levels of, of uh, society here in Connecticut um, who are fed up with the way um, our neighbors, our unhoused neighbors are forced to live in places that they're forced to take refuge in and criminalized spaces and such. And we're trying to do something about that. These homes are, are real game changers for people. When you can get from, a, from living in a tent to go through a door and lock it behind you, it's a, it's a tremendous change in, in people's lives who are forced to uh, live on the street because they've, been, they've become economic refugees. Just describe the tiny homes and tell me what they're going to have inside. It's a prefabbed uh, kit that's uh, built by a company called Pallet on the West Coast. They've actually contracted with quite a few municipalities across the country. Uh, Most recently, by the way, Providence, Rhode Island, has just approved a plan for uh, 45 of these in a designated piece of uh, publicly owned land. So these homes are um, 
as we're finding out this morning, they're, they're assemblable in about two hours. They're equipped with everything, uh, everything except plumbing. And we do, we, of course, we have a house of hospitality here, and we're, we're rehabbing the first floor of the house so that we can make it available for uh, people will have, be able to come and go into uh, kitchen, bathroom, uh, showers, and, set, and such. So all of that is available in the house. The, the homes themselves are, are hooked up with electricity. Uh, we can put solar panels on them. They have heating and cooling units and everything you'd need in a, you know, in a home. What we're talking about here is a micro-neighborhood. It is really true that, um, that the folks who live in the backyard are no longer homeless, okay? Because we have a community, but this is a, as I said, a micro-neighborhood. We have people living together in, cooperatively um, and self-governing, you know? So now the challenge for us is um, how do we make this space more livable, more human? And more comfortable and certainly more warm you know as the you know we're up against another winter and um, we need these kinds of communities you know um, unfortunately the city is uh, is not recognizing people's human rights to do this on public land when they're not provided with housing let me ask you actually you've transformed your backyard and the next door neighbor's backyard which is your daughter's house right that's correct you didn't need any um permits or you just did it anyway even though you would have needed permits well, in terms of process, I, would, I, I guess I would call it a, sort of a hybrid process. We understand that the city ordinances um, do not support it, okay? Um, therefore, we decided that we would proceed with it based on the authority of, uh, of human rights, and specifically the uh, UN Universal Declaration on Human Rights. We're using that as, a, as our authority uh, to do this, that, uh, that these local laws that uh, have to do with zoning and you know, when they violate people's right to take refuge when they have no place to go, that those laws are not to be respected if we're going to welcome people who are unhoused back into the status of neighbor. So we went ahead with this project. The city has been aware of it the whole time, and we have started a dialogue several months ago, which has now uh, borne fruit in, a, in us uh, getting together with department heads at uh, City Hall and, and going through a permit process. Uh, it's not complete. We still have some steps to go in order to get authorization for the, you know, the electricity to hook up the electricity to all the homes. But we anticipate that that's going to happen. The city has not, has not changed its policy or changed these unjust laws yet. Um, they have uh, seen some, uh, a lot of positive possibilities with what we're doing. And so they've, uh, on some level at least, they've partnered with us uh, to, to get it complete. The goal of this is not to build tiny homes. The goal is to change city policy so that that would be respected, that, that they could actually uh, support these encampments. That was Mark Colville of New Haven, Connecticut's Amistad Catholic Worker House. Not long after this interview was conducted, the city of New Haven ordered the tiny houses to be dismantled until the permitting process was complete. Colville responded defiantly, saying he wouldn't comply. Learn more about this tiny house project and others like it across the U.S. by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. listening to Between the Lines, a weekly program presenting news and analysis of critical issues affecting our communities, the nation, and the world. Between the Lines is produced and distributed by Squeaky Wheel Productions. 
If you have suggestions for topics and guests, please contact Between the Lines through our website at btlonline.org, where you can hear our current and archive programs in streaming audio and support our show. There you can also subscribe to free weekly podcasts, program summaries, and interview transcripts. Follow us on Facebook at Between the Lines Radio News Magazine and on Twitter at BTL Radio News. Thanks for listening on WUML in Lowell, Massachusetts, KTWH in Two Harbors, Minnesota, KRFP in Moscow, Idaho, dozens of other community radio stations across the U.S. and abroad, and wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Our theme music was written by Richard Hill and performed by Mikata. This week's program was produced by Susan Bramhall, Mary Hunt, Anna Manzo, Bob Nixon, Melinda Tuhus, and Jeff Yates. For Between the Lines, I'm Scott Harris.